From the studios of WGMU in Fairfax, Virginia, this is Loose Vegan Indeterminate. Loose Vegan Indeterminate is the podcast of the Economic Society at George Mason University, a registered student organization committed to guiding students, organizing events, and provoking discussion to amplify George Mason University's reputation as a destination for economics students. I'm your host, Dominic Pino. Our guest today is Professor Daniel Klein. Professor Klein is in our esteemed department, and he is also the JIN chair at the Mercatus Center. In the policy realm, he has researched toll roads, urban transit, auto emissions, credit reporting, and the FDA. To fend off any possible accusations of not being well-rounded, he complements that research with more philosophical interests in what he calls the liberal tradition. His usage of that word, liberal, is not without controversy, but by it he means the tradition of thought originating from the Scottish Enlightenment, especially the works of David Hume and Adam Smith. To distinguish from its modern political meaning, the term classical liberal is more descriptive and refined. He is a leading scholar of that incomparable man Smith and leads the Adam Smith program in our esteemed department. He has graciously accepted my invitation to be the first guest on this podcast and, among other things, explain what on earth loose, vague, and indeterminate means. Thank you for being here, Professor Klein. Thank you for having me. All right. So we all know that Adam Smith wrote The Wealth of Nations. They teach that in high schools. We all have heard of that book. Uh, because it's the treatise that founded modern economics in 1776, or at least that's what most historians say. But Smith wrote the Theory of Moral Sentiments, which we will call TMS, um, in 1759. And it's also quite remarkable. Could you please give us a brief history of why the Theory of Moral Sentiments is less regarded despite being written uh, over 15 years earlier? Since the books have been published, uh, it's true, TMS has been less regarded. That started to change, however, about 40 years ago. And if we speak just of the last several decades, I would no longer say that it is less regarded. But why was it less regarded for so long? That's a really interesting matter. It's also interesting in light of the fact that Smith himself thought TMS was the better work. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, let me say this. When TMS first came out, it was warmly received. A couple of favorable views, reviews came out, one by David Hume, one by Edmund Burke. Um, and Smith was celebrated and uh, was elevated in society generally as a leading moral philosopher. But he revised the book throughout his life, including in the last year of his life, where he made major revisions for the final and sixth edition. And in the decades, very shortly after he died in 1790, the book very much fell out of favor, and people started dissing it, if you will, openly. Mm -hmm. There had been whispers about discontent with it, dislike of it uh, before, but the whispers became open and influential and really pervasive. And then the book fell into oblivion for some 170 years, you might say, until basically the late 20th century. Why was that? Well, in brief, the book is very non-foundationalist in its ethics. That actually appealed to Hume and to Burke, in my view. But It did not appeal to the people who rose to prominence and to the spirit of the times that took hold in the decades after Smith's death and throughout most 
well, the 19th century and most of the 20th century. Mm-hmm. And so people very much held its non-foundationalism against it for the longest time. They basically dismissed the book, broadly speaking, on that grounds. And then in the later part of the 20th century, attitudes about foundationalism and ethics and non-foundationalism changed significantly. And they and m- many people stopped holding its non-foundationalism against it. Mm-hmm. And, by, and, and by non-foundationalism, you mean what exactly? It, I mean that in ethics, and you could say this also for epistemology, which in a way is a subset of ethics, um, there are not first principles, self-evident truths upon which, like, we, like a block of concrete that provides a foundation for a building, we then build out our structure of understanding. There are not clearly clear set sort of unvarying, unchanging first principles, if you like, Mm -hmm. central axioms for ethics or epistemology. And only in the late 20th century, well, basically you might say that the attempts to make ethics foundationalist failed Mm-hmm. for well over a century you know it's like it kind of like people finally kind of decided that it wasn't wasn't actually working and perhaps not even doable and so non-foundationalism became more accepted and that in a sense enabled people to crack the code of TMS mm-hmm. and once they cracked the code they started just finding all sorts of treasure in there <laughs> and i mean it's unbelievable uh how great I think you know this work is. Sure. Yeah. So I guess this is a very simple question, but it might be difficult to answer. But I mean, just broadly, what is TMS about? What is what is the theory of moral sentiments about? Well, <clears throat> moral sentiments. Let's start there. Sentiments are basically feelings, um, and sentiments is the broader term. You can, if you like, divide that into a more active kind of sentiment and a more passive kind of sentiment. For the active ones, we might say passion, as he often does, and for the passive ones, um, emotion. So passions and emotions are sort of uh, kind of categories of sentiment. And you and I can look out on a landscape and we can both feel that this is serene and lovely and we share this sentiment about the landscape, that is not a moral sentiment, uh, just in terms of our kind of feeling about the landscape. Moral sentiment is when we are spectating human conduct, Mm -hmm. and it's a sense of the beauty of human conduct. And when we spectate human conduct, we're concerned about the propriety of such conduct. That's the key feature of its beauty. And so moral sentiments is like sentiments about human things, mm-hmm. about human activity. That's what moral sentiment, that's all that moral sentiment means. Uh, sentiments about the human scene, if you will. Mm-hmm. So this is a theory of moral sentiment. So it's an attempt to have a, a way of understanding those to explain behavior, right? Yes, to understand and to talk about it and to get into assessing it and how to talk about our assessments. Now, the 
longer title of the book, there is actually a subtitle of the book, Mm -hmm. which he added in the fourth edition, The Theory of Moral Sentiments, or an essay towards an analysis of the principles by which men naturally judge concerning the conduct and character, first of their neighbors and afterwards of themselves. Mm -hmm. Now, that extended title, which really should be included in the title of the book, um, very much makes it sound sound like it, it is about life among you know you and your neighbors, mm-hmm. you and your jural equals, like you and your coworkers, you and your employer, you and your employees, you and your coats, you and your piano teacher, you know whoever, mm-hmm. you know you and Novak Djokovic, you and Isaac Newton, to mm-hmm. use an example that Thomas Jefferson once used in, but, in making a distinction. But the point here I want to make here is that. It come the title makes it seem like the book is principally about sort of non political relationships. Mm-hmm. Um you and your neighbor, as it were, and you know, you and yourself. Um but the truth is there is a lot about politics in the book and about the relationship between the jural superior, if you will, the governor and the governed. Mm-hmm. So actually there's more about politics than this title lets on mm-hmm. and smith at the at the end of the book he promises more on politics right at the very last paragraph that's right yeah so and that's kind of a kind of a setup for for wealth of nations right yes i very much see it that way that tms serves as a broader ethical umbrella under which we should understand the wealth of nations being located okay yeah, so if, you know, knowing Smith for Wealth of Nations is one thing, but in order to really understand that and really understand that, um, it helps to read TMS to get the moral framework within which Smith is operating. Would that be fair to say? Yes, yes. Okay. It's not a, like a super rigid framework, but uh-huh. it's like a whole plexus of ways of seeing things and talking about things. But yes. Okay. All right. So um, how does Smith seek to answer those moral questions? What is his what is his method? Um, one of his favorite phrases, of course, and his favorite thought experiments is the impartial spectator. Uh, could you explain, um, obviously, as best you can, he's very um, polysemous with his use of impartial spectator. Uh, he used many different meanings for that phrase. But as best you can, could you explain that as kind of his, his method for understanding moral sentiments? Let me first say that before we get to the uh, meanings of impartial spectator, that he associated moral approval, moral sentiment, with sympathy. Mm-hmm. And talking about sympathy wasn't new in uh, the moral philosophy of Britain at the time, but he kind of insisted almost on an, on it as an organizing principle for our thought, where he said always look for a sympathy behind or attaching to any moral judgment. And to follow through on that method, if you want to call it that, that suggestion, it often requires, as it were, inventing beings with whom we sympathize. Mm -hmm. Because if you're sitting by yourself and reflecting on someone's conduct and come to moral sentiments— who are you sympathizing with? Well, you're alone in a room, so where's the sympathy? Well, the big move here is to 
talk about to, to introduce and develop the man within the breast, mm-hmm. which is his expression for conscience. And so the sympathy most notably is with the man within the breast. Mm-hmm. So he's very allegorical. I mean, he's got a man in a man, you know, a man within my breast. You know, you might then wonder about a man within the breast of the man within my breast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is not an extraneous thought by any means. Um, because I do think his mode of ethical thinking is recursive. And that that, that relates to its non-foundationalism. So the, the impartial spectator um, has various meanings. Um, what are some of those meanings? It starts off most plainly as a sort of indifferent bystander mm-hmm. like if you have uh, some kind of maybe altercation with somebody at a restaurant and there's someone sitting at the next table who happens to be spectating and happens to be impartial so far as we know in the sense that the person's not partial to either you or the the person you're having a disagreement with that person is you know in a casual sense an impartial spectator mm-hmm so that's sort of one first level. Um, it, another level is somebody who we take or look up to, some some exemplar-type figure who we just ha- feel as good judgment at high levels of, of thinking and of rules um, for impartiality, for fairness, for wisdom. And so that person can be uh, sometimes referred to uh, as uh, the impartial spectator. Um, another thing is the man within the breast mm-hmm. is often referred to as impartial spectator, often with the word supposed yeah. in front of it. Because he's awful partial, really, right? <laughs> yes. It's not as though – you see, impartiality – there's two things to understand about the word impartial – First of all, it's not that vaunted a term. It's not that vaunted a characteristic. It's only as, um, you know, worthy of veneration, impartiality, as far as the level it goes up. Mm -hmm. In the rules, it impartially executes. So, you know, you can say somebody impartially executes, applies some set of rules. Mm -hmm. But are those rules impartial? Okay. And so that brings you up to a next level of rules. Mm -hmm. And you might then conclude that the rules, which the guy impartially applied, are themselves partial. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, then you've kind of like how, you know, so there's kind of always a next level. You know, what about the rules of those, you know, that you just said that was impartial? Are those impartial? And there's there's really, you know, this brings us to the idea of sort of impartiality all the way up, as it were, which leads to the idea of a super knowledgeable, super wise, godlike being or God. And that, too, is the impartial spectator in Smith. So we have basically a deity figure or a godlike figure, an allegorical godlike figure, um, which, in fact, is something we're always aspiring to in Smith. So, so he, the man within our breast relates to that being as a representative. So our man within the breast is a representative of, of if you will, the godlike being, 
but it's not necessarily a good representative. Mm-hmm. We all know that representatives may not be very good representatives, <laughs> right? Yep. I mean, just look at Congress. <laughs> um, so, so that's why supposed is often in front of impartial spectator when mm-hmm. he refers to these figures, especially the man within the breast. He uses that expression. Certainly. Okay. So uh, it's interesting that you say you know, godlike figure, this this god or godlike figure, because Smith, despite writing in, in the 1750s in Scotland at a time um, when it was sort of just assumed everyone was a Christian in the place he was living, he's very ambiguous about this in the book. He doesn't really say one way or the other, doesn't take a super strong stand on that. Um, what do you make of that in terms of um, in terms of how the book was received or how it's applicable um, to societies where um, we don't have those assumptions of um, common religion? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, let me just back up a little bit and say, regardless of how theistic Smith was, he's definitely affirming a God, like a lot of similarity, a lot of godish features mm-hmm to this highest sense of impartial spectator. And one of them, which we haven't specifically mentioned, is benevolence. Okay. Benevolence towards the whole of humankind. And so that's very important to keep in mind. I think without question that Smith is building out an ethical outlook that is isomorphic, if you like, patterned after you know, monotheism, Mm -hmm. and Christianity perhaps in particular, but whatever. Um, Now, is he in fact theistic? That's unclear. I think it's possible. First of all, there are definitely explicit affirmations of theism in the book. Mm -hmm. There's explicit affirmations of divine providence repeatedly. So that's there. So, the, you know, taking those that they're exoteric, that's to say they're external, obvious interpretation, uh, he's clearly, you know, signaling theism. And, you know, I, I don't myself have a strong conclusion on this matter. I think he's, ex- he's extraordinarily cagey on this matter. And while you have those clear affirmations, there are a whole number of things about the work and the whole pattern of his other works as well, and the way he revised the work, mm-hmm. which certainly could lead one to a conclusion that he's a lot more like his friend Hume than he's letting on. Mm-hmm. And that is to say agnostic. I don't think it's proper, actually, to, ref- to think of Hume as, you know, a, like, a, like a modern atheist who says, yeah. oh, yeah, I know what you mean by God, and no, it doesn't exist. Yeah, he was called an atheist at the time, but that was probably more of a pejorative than it was an attempt to accurately label him. I think that's fair. Yeah. And, and some of the anecdotes about him are extremely interesting mm-hmm. that way. But, um, I mean, I mean the, the agnosticism sort of drops out of Hume's whole understanding um and it has as much to do with well we don't even know what it means for 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 like a being like this to create such a singular to to, to under to do like such a singular thing as create the universe Mm -hmm. because the whole idea of um actions and causation have to do with associations and regularities and patterns and and so he's more agnostic Sure. About it than, um, you know, atheistic, I would say. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. So, so what do you think that does for making um, for making TMS still relevant to places where you know we don't have a, a common religious background? Does it does it make the book more transferable than if Smith had come out and been very unambiguous about um, about Christian beliefs and things like that? In some ways, it makes it more suitable to a diverse, you know, let's say we have a society that has a diversity of religion. That's Let's start with one that's mostly religious, but diversely religious. I think it actually makes it more fitting because it's not specific to any particular creed. Because, mm-hmm. um, you know, I mean, as long as it's sort of monotheistic and benevolent, which, you know, they are, uh, then people can, you know, slot it in. Mm-hmm. No problem. In terms of also people who aren't theistic and who are more inclined towards this allegorical view, agnosticism, what have you, well, I think it appeals to them too. And and really importantly, in fact, because I think a lot of those people, particularly the people who call themselves atheists, have thrown away too much of what they associate with religion based on some of the associations they definitely want to sort of reject. Mm -hmm. And Smith even says this, in fact. Um, And I think it's been a great failing and tragedy of the last, you know, couple hundred years, the extent to which people have thrown out allegory, universal benevolence, and things like Smith is doing, kind of quasi, if you will, quasi-religious concepts. Um because they are associated with theism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, Smith postulates two kinds of rules in TMS. This is to, to get away from the uh, religion question here a little bit and move on to a new topic. Uh, Smith postulates two kinds of rules in TMS, precise and accurate, and the name of this podcast, Loose, Vague, and Indeterminate. Um, it's funny because... When I first heard that phrase in your class last year, I said, that's a great name for a podcast. That was my first thought. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but that was my first thought. Um, and so uh, the, the two rules are precise and accurate and loose, vague, and indeterminate. Could you explain what he means by that and why he draws that distinction there? Yeah, it's a super important distinction. And he's got a, a super analogy to help explain it. So we're talking about the rules of moral conduct, or if you like, the rules of different different virtues. Um, and the analogy he makes is to rules for writing. And there are two categories there, too. There's grammar, which is precise and accurate. And then there's aesthetics or criticism, which is loose, vague, and indeterminate. Grammar is precise and accurate because we have really quite precise rules about, you know, what the grammar should be and look like in, in you know, individual cases. And we teach grammar and we expect people to get their grammar right. And then beyond grammar school, we just expect it. Mm-hmm. We, we smack them if they violate it, but we don't applaud them for satisfying it. Yeah. Capitalizing at the beginning of a sentence, putting a period at the end doesn't get you a reward. Right. Yeah. Um, so that's the, the moral rule, the moral, the virtue, the moral virtue that corresponds to grammar is commutative justice. Uh, that's one sense of justice. It's maybe the sense that people most naturally think of, 
which is um, not messing with other people's person, property, or promises due. Mm -hmm. That is to say, things due to them by contract. And that, too, is precise and accurate. In fact, it has evolved to be precise and accurate. That's in, that comes from Hume. Um, and so commutative justice is like grammar. Commutative justice is this, main, is this important virtue in Smith, and it's very special in a number of ways, just as grammar is rather special. But commutative justice <clears throat> doesn't actually tell you – it tells you not to mess with other people's stuff. Mm-hmm. It doesn't tell you anything about what to do with your own stuff. Yeah. It doesn't tell you anything about how to make a becoming use of what is your own. And that's exactly, again, like writing. Grammar doesn't tell you what to put on the page. Mm-hmm. You know? And in fact, you know, if you turn in a blank piece of paper, the professor will fail you, but you know, they have to admit your grammar was perfect. <laughs> um, and so there's, it's a wonderful analogy. And so there are all these other virtues, besides commutative justice, have rules that are loose, vague, and indeterminate. And there, there's scope for both praise and blame, mm-hmm. and that is decided kind of in relation to a middle point, a middle band of what's sort of normal or expected for the reference group of the person and the community. And if your behavior exceeds that, it's praiseworthy. If it's below that, it's blameworthy. Mm-hmm. That, that middle range, by the way, is called propriety. So propriety is sort of middling to okay, just just okay. Okay. Um, yeah, and so all the other virtues are loose, vague, and indeterminate. Yeah. So so commutative justice is the clearest and the easiest to define of all of the uh, different virtues and different justices, but it's also the one that applies to the least, the smallest universe of things, right? And and as as we get to other virtues that are um, bigger and include more things, it's harder for us to define them and harder for us to put those strict rules on it like we can uh, with grammar or like we can with commutative justice. Yeah. Like if we talk about other virtues, say hospitality mm-hmm. or generosity or friendship or gratitude, it's not as clear what's proper and improper there. Mm -hmm. And it's going to vary a lot more on the particular circumstances. If you go around the room, you're going to get more differences in opinion about how hospitable John uh, John was. Mm -hmm. Whereas, you know, in terms of messing with people's stuff, you're going to get more of the same answers if you go around the room. Yes, you know, he shouldn't have, you know, taken that guy's lunch or something. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, (laughs) sure. (laughs) A lot less ambiguity there. Um, Like grammar. Yes, correct. So in addition to... Uh, those two kinds of rules, we already hinted at commutative justice, but Smith postulates um, three kinds of justice in TMS. Um, would you mind uh, laying out what those other two are for us? So commutative justice is not messing with other people's stuff, not messing with their property, their person, or promises due. Um, but what are those other two kinds that are loose, vague, and indeterminate? One is the make, it has to do with how you use or distribute your own resources. And the term that he brings up for that is distributive justice. Now, this, he's got a understanding of you distributing your resources. So mm-hmm. this should not be confused with government welfare programs and so on. 
Um, it's about beneficence. It's about friendship. It's about charity, generosity, and um, so among on. Among equals. Right? Yes, yes. Think, let's think about it among equals, right? So it's let's keep this sort of non-political, non-governmental. And that's primarily how he means it. Um, you can then take that meaning and, and, and relate it to governmental sector stuff. But let's start with what's simpler. And um, – the di- distributive justice is a sort of broad category, kind of in contra- con- contradistinction to commutative justice, and this third type we'll get to, um, about making a becoming use of what is your own and sort of all sorts of different virtues you might have heard of, like friendship, beneficence, and, and so on and so forth, would sort of broadly be within the social virtues that um, he means here for distributive justice. Um, and so it has to do with, well, the resources being yours, you're using them or distributing them to proper purposes that connect to people. So you're sort of doing justice to people, like your friend, your neighbor, and so on, your mm-hmm. coworker, um, you know, other uh, beneficiaries of, of charity and so on. So that's, that's the second kind of justice, it's, it's, and it's the becoming Virtues. It's the they they make life beautiful. Mm-hmm. You know, mere grammar doesn't make anything beautiful. Yeah. I mean, something's not beautiful simply because it satisfies grammar. Sure, it's got to do something in the realm of aesthetics or, uh, to to be beautiful, and that's where distributive justice is. And then the third is estimative justice it's about estimating objects proper properly he makes it quite clear what the meaning is he does not actually use the word estimative justice he doesn't use any term for it like he does for the previous two but i use the term estimative because i think it's a it's a natural and nice fit and fits his other language um and so that's about estimating objects properly like a poem or a picture he gives the examples and if you don't estimate them, evaluate them as much as, you know, maybe they should be, where um, you're doing them less than justice. Mm-hmm. If you overestimate them, you're doing them more than justice. Mm-hmm. And um, this would ultimately flow back to the whole matter of the well-being of humankind and satisfying the godlike figure that is benevolent, but it's not as attached to any specific person. Mm-hmm. So, and it's not distributing something which is any kind of well-defined resource of your own. So it doesn't really work as distributive justice. Mm-hmm. Moreover, it's so pervasive and um, like as soon as you estimate the poem with an estimation, you can then make that estimation the object of a new estimation. And so it's... It's it's kind of extensive and all surrounding mm-hmm. in a sense, but all three of them. Let me just say, commutative justice, not messing with other people's stuff. Jim making an action, not messing or messing with other people's stuff. Dis- distributive justice, Jim making a use of his own, acting in that way, and estimative, Jim estimating object. All three are about an action taken by an actor. Mm-hmm. So justice in Smith, and just in any, I think, proper way of thinking, is about an action taken by an actor. Even if you can't necessarily identify exactly who an actor is, it might be somewhat abstract. 
you know, like uh, an organization. You don't exactly know, you know, it was Bob who did this or something. But, yeah. So let's transition now to talking about Smith's style. Uh, his argumentation style in TMS is often based on describing feelings with illustrations. So, for example, he mentions the feeling you get when a joke falls flat or the feelings that we get when we see the rich and famous. Those are just two examples he uses. Um, what do you make of Smith's preference for illustrative storytelling as opposed to uh, other moral philosophy texts that might have that more... Um, you know, we're going to have an axiom or we're going to reason from it kind of motive, motive writing. The illustrations give you an idea of what he's actually generalizing about. I mean, he's giving you – I mean, the, the, the more general formulations are in a sense abbreviations of these sets of things in human life. And, well, what things are you talking about? And he's using illustrations to give you an idea about an injustice that was done and the resentment that is felt and the punishment that is delivered and all sorts of – and so, yeah, the book is um, just teeming with all these wonderful, wonderful illustrations, which you know are ways of making a concrete. You know, you need to get back to the concrete so you know what the more abstract is actually generalizing about. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it so often you know, disciplines our thought to be concrete. And to actually helps us refine the more general formulation, and in a sense, it tests it as well as communicates it. Um, the illustrations are also super important because he'll talk about these scenarios, sometimes things from actual history, and he expresses a judgment and a sentiment about it. And that's super important because we need Smith's actual judgments, the particular instances of his judgment. To get a sense of what his feel, idea of good is, of how he sees things, what he approves of and disapproves of. There's a saying, an empty bag does not stand upright. Mm-hmm. In other words, you need to have things in the bag to get the bag to stand upright. And so Smith's you know, broad, non-foundationalist ethical plexus is sort of like the empty bag. And without all of these particular instances of judgment, which then, of course, multiply vastly on important issues of public policy in the wealth of nations, those are all the those are things in the bag. Mm -hmm. And so from all of these particular instances, we get a real feeling for what Smith's judgment is, what his vision is, what he's for and against. And so even though he's not foundationalist, he does give us a feeling for what he's for, Mm -hmm. you know, what what sense he makes of the world. Sure. Yeah, and and I know it's sort of a, it can be a commonplace view sometimes to see theory of moral sentiments as sort of Smith um, being in opposition to what he says in The Wealth of Nations, and that Wealth of Nations is this, you know, uh, individualist, um, selfish book, and Theory of Moral Sentiments is this sympathetic sort of more community book, and we need to like understand them separately. But uh, as you just expressed there, you say they they complement each other. Could you go into that a little bit more? Yeah, I don't think there's any conflict between the two books. It is a very different mode of expression uh, and feeling, but there is absolutely no you know conceptual or ideological conflict between the two books. You know, these things that happen in our micro-human ecologies, our families, workplace, and neighborhoods, 
those are things that, that we get attached to. Those de- we develop habits and rules around those, and you know, securing and abiding by those become interests of ours. So then, when he goes and talks about self-interest, in it's not something apart from human organic community life Mm -hmm. it's like the guy you know wants to feed his family and so he wants to make an honest dollar um so so there's no disconnect in terms of the language and expression the difference is very striking and i think it's quite deliberate um there's just you know wealth of nations does not have that kind of warmth that spreads all over you know mm-hmm. that uh, that tms is suffused with in fact the term sympathy i think appears not at all wow in the wealth of nations i think the term sentiment appears maybe once or twice if i'm not mistaken the word spectator appears in, in fact yeah the word spectator appears once at the beginning and once at the end okay <laughs> which is quite interesting um and uh, so there's a lot of difference in the mode of expression for sure Okay, yeah. Um that's that's interesting. Uh, so do you think that TMS is um transferable to our modern American lives or do you think it's um is it is it in any sense stuck in 18th century Scotland where it was written? No, it's not at all stuck. That's one reason it's just a total classic and a great book. I think it can serve human well-being, human purposes today as well as it ever could Mm -hmm. um i think we're desperately in need of it in fact uh so yeah no it's not in any sense dated Mm -hmm. i mean there might be a few specific things that might be hard for people to get uh an understanding of or or something like that or there might be certain situations where he expresses a sentiment that might feel a little bit you know out of step for us sure uh, or something like that. I don't even think there's that much that way in Smith. Yeah, I mean, one of the things, like I mentioned earlier, he's got a part about the feeling you get when a joke falls flat. I remember reading that, and I'd be like, I felt that yesterday. You know, like, <laughs> like you know, it's just it's stuff like that happens all the time, and he's got, you know, those same kind of, um, those same kind of feelings that we get about about all these different things. And, and a lot of it is, is really, um, it's really part of human nature more than it is part of any particular cultural context which is really pretty remarkable given how diverse um how diverse those cultural contexts can be all around the world yeah i think that in fact if someone is reading it and comes across an expression or a judgment that they they feel they're in conflict with or you know conflicts with their own sentiment about the matter discussed i encourage the person to think maybe they should think of it more the way smith does Mm -hmm. maybe they should be more 18th century england or britain (laughs) You know, uh-huh. maybe the fault lies in us. <laughs> sure, sure. Yeah, so I guess just uh, one last uh, question about the book. Um, you know, it's got, it's got, we talked about the illustrations before, but it's also got these more lengthy um, parables about about things. One of them is about, um, is about China, about an earthquake in China, and contrasting that, the loss that's there with, uh, the loss of a man's pinky finger in uh, Scotland, so to speak. Could you kind of go through that parable and um, kind of, uh, d- yeah, just kind of summarize that so we can kind of get a flavor for the way that Smith uh, argues about these things? Okay, yeah, in in that, he actually uses uh, those two things 
to present two different thought experiments. Uh, the first one is, is, is the passive situation, which is just, you know, you or, you know, like you say, sitting, he speaks of it as a man of humanity in Europe. And you learn of this great earthquake in China, which, you know, destroyed a tremendous number of people in some way, and and how the guy would feel about that. And he said the guy would lament it and would, you know, be sad and speak about how sad it is and so on, the fragility of human life and existence and how this might – he might then start thinking about how this might affect the rest of the world and even, like, finally how it might affect things back at home, which mm-hmm. the presumption is it's not going to be very much. And actually. very sincerely have sympathy for that, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But if the guy were, for some reason, to lose his little finger tomorrow, he would not sleep tonight. And he would, in fact, be much more distressed over that paltry misfortune, mm-hmm. as he calls it. And so in the passive situation, he's showing us that um, the pinky looms larger to the guy than does the earthquake. Mm -hmm. That's the passive thought experiment. And then the active thought experiment is, okay, suppose the guy could somehow, you know, not lose his pinky by causing an earthquake in China. He doesn't, like, specify the mechanism, (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) but, you know, just some science fiction fantasy mechanism that somehow the guy can, or, or you could, change this example slightly and say suppose suppose the guy could um save china from an earthquake by cutting off his pinky presumably it'd be the same decision but he says in this active situation the guy would lose his pinky Mm -hmm. okay because he and and okay so that's there the earthquake looms larger Mm -hmm. to the guy in the active yeah in the active so there's a difference between the passive, the pinky looms larger, the active, the earthquake looms larger. And all of that is for Smith to then ask, why this difference? Mm-hmm. Why is it that when our passive sentiments are so selfish uh, and – I forget the other word – sorted, sorted and selfish, why is it that our active sentiments are so often so generous and so noble? Mm-hmm. So that's the question he poses yeah. through this whole big, you know, mm-hmm. storytelling. Sure. Yeah, and I just think that's a really remarkable way to go about it. Um, so, yeah, I guess we can we can wrap up about the about the book there. It's I, you know, I'm taking the class right now with Professor Klein on this. I would definitely recommend picking it up and reading it. Um, like I said, a lot of those sentiments that Smith expresses are still just as potent as they were uh, when he wrote them. Um, so is there anything that you'd like to plug for the audience before we uh, wrap up here? Oh, no. Just a uh, second, D- Dominic, on saying um, the book's really worthwhile. It is a hard read, um, so I do think some guidance could help. <laughs> um, it took, you know, I'm reading it for the 50th time and teaching it for, I don't know, the 30th. And um, I'm still excited and enthusiastic and learning new things all the time. Uh-huh. All right. Well, thank you so much, Professor Klein. Uh, Loose Vegan Indeterminate is a production of the Economic Society at George Mason University in conjunction with the wonderful folks at WGMU. Special thanks to General Manager Henry Fisher, Production Director Grace Snyder, and Faculty Advisor Roger Smith. You can follow the Economic Society on Twitter. Our handle is at EconSocietyGMU. 
to see our blog or upcoming events, you can find us on the web at go.gmu.edu slash econ.